Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podzilov. This week, the recall effort against Seattle City Councilwoman Shama Sawant moves forward. After 15 months, almost 15 months, we are finally at the point where we can turn in signatures. Abortion is now effectively outlawed in Texas, with no exceptions for rape or incest. Goal number one in the state of Texas is to eliminate rape so that no woman, no person, will be a victim of rape. And remembering 9-11 20 years later. There's chaos in New York at the moment. There have been not one but two incidents, as Charlie and Diane have so ably reported so far. The second one coming in 9.03, uh, when television was on live, and you could see what was clearly a jet aircraft flying into the second trade tower. But first, Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin will not sign a city council bill restricting the use of less lethal weapons by Seattle police. However, it will still become law. Joining me now comes Matt Markovich. And what exactly is going on here? Well, this is not your conventional bill that goes through the process where it all of a sudden becomes law because there is a key decision by U.S. Uh, District Court Judge James Robard, who's been overseeing this nearly 10-year consent decree. Mm-hmm. So what happens is, uh, you may recall over the summer, when there was all the protests and the city council didn't like the use of tear gas and blast balls and pepper spray, well, basically they passed an all-out ban on those non-lethal weapons to use for crowd control, which immediately got a court injunction. I'm, I'm, con- con- I'm capsulizing a lot of yeah. stuff that happened here. And then, and so what happens, they went back to the drawing board at the city council level and thought, you know, well, well let's draw something. We want to have something on the books about how police officers use these uh, weapons. Because it was initially a, a complete and total yeah, ban. Yeah, total ban. I mean, you couldn't uh, even, it even affected SWAT operations, which, you know, uses tear gas for uh, totally different purposes, you know. so But it was like tear gas, pepper spray, blast balls, rubber bullets. Yeah, they couldn't even own it. You know, the, the department couldn't even have it. And if anybody assisted the Seattle Police Department, they couldn't use it. So it was a complete ban, which uh, essentially one judge ruled, uh, called it, uh, put in a restraining order. And then Judge Robart, who's been overseeing this consent decree, who has the, the big voice in all this, that basically endorsed that and said, hey, you got to do something different. I'm oversimplifying it, but that's mm. kind of where we are right now. So the council went back and said, you know what? Working with the court monitor and the and the Department of Justice uh, and looking at the consent decree, we think we can came up with a, a another policy p- plan where we can have some limited use of tear gas and pepper spray. How to use it? Pepper spray this way and blast balls. And so they went ahead and passed that. Well, it went to the mayor has thirty days to sign it, and she decided not to. Which means the way the city works is that she has three options. She can veto it, saying, I don't reject it altogether, uh, approve it, or not sign it. And by not signing it, it still becomes law. But in this bill, there's a caveat that it basically says, well, this is only effective if Judge Robart says okay. Mm-hmm. So you don't usually have a conditional element in the bill, in a, in a council bill that has a judicial approval already baked into it. And so uh, Mayor Durkin sent this scathing letter to the council, multiple pages, outlining why she thinks this bill is, why she didn't sign it. One of the reasons that she calls and she cites right away is you can't have a judge's approval baked into the bill because then it changes everything. Mm-hmm. It could change everything. Um, 
So she cited a lot of different conditions why this bill is really not ready for prime time and reasons she thought that the judge would eventually reject it so everybody goes back to the drawing board. And she's using saying some of the elements are just a complete waste of time. Um, and it goes back to that you and I have talked about before uh, with Judge Robart saying he doesn't like knee-jerk reactions by the city council to some of the things that have been going on with the Seattle Police Department. The anticipation is he may look at this as a knee, another knee-jerk uh, reaction by the council. They want to pass something, but in the consent decree, which is basically an agreement between the Department of Justice and the city of Seattle that he oversees, there's an allowance for non-lethal weapons. He w- so a complete it, ban would violate the consent decree. Yeah, I mean he. It, I mean the, I'm not a lawyer, but that seems pretty straightforward. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, exactly. So the council has always been pushing the limit on this one. And even though Lisa Herbold, council member Lisa Herbold, who supervises or chairs the Public Safety Committee, which this came out of, believes it's it's good legislation, you know, it they, they, they keep on pushing it, pushing mm-hmm. the limits here. And so Mayor Durkin, by her writing this letter, which she didn't even have to do, telling the council, here's X, Y, Z, T, Z, and Y, you know, repeatedly over and over again, why this is wrong, leg- bad legislation, by sending that basically is telegraphing to the judge, hey, maybe you need to look at this, <laughs> uh, Judge Robart. And as we all know, Mayor so Durkin was U.S. attorney when all this happened, and why, she was part of it. Why didn't she just veto it? Good question. Because, I mean, I, I assume this thing passed with the unanimous or eight-to-one vote that the city I council think, tends I think, to pass I think, things I with, think but, maybe if she vetoes it, that's, that forces the council to go back to the drawing board again. Mm-hmm. By allowing it to go, th- not signing it, and let it happen, then the, the, the progress goes on. Now, the bill also calls for the police department to go back, take what the council passed, and work it into some policy, and then come to the judge and everything. So there's a long process here. And I think, and again, I'm this is speculation on my part. I'll be very clear about this because I've not heard from the mayor is that by allowing that to go through the process, you're not having them go back to the drawing board again. You're, you know, maybe she wants to have the council learn a lesson. By the having judge, the judge veto it. Yeah, well, the judge starts striking down elements of it, saying you can't do this, you can't do that. So once again, we are under severe restrictions on how Seattle police can use non-lethal methods during crowd control, met- uh, during demonstrations. No use of flashbangs. Uh, no use of tear gas. You know, these are the things that the a previous judge has kind of allowed, and that's where we sit. And we're going to be sitting this way for quite a while. All right. Most Matt Markovich, thank you so much for the update. But stick around. We're going to talk to you a little bit later on about your memories of 9-11. When we come back, the recall of Shama Sawant appears headed for the ballot when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pojla. This week, opponents of Seattle City Councilwoman Shama Sawant have turned in their petitions. They hope to have the lone socialist city council member recalled from office. Now, Sawant is accused of violating the law by using city resources for her tax Amazon campaign, illegally allowing a mob of her supporters into City Hall after hours, and publicly revealing the federally protected address of Mayor Jenny Durkin. Now, the state Supreme Court found all of those accusations valid enough to go forward with the recall, and now 
The signatures have been turned in, but they still need to be verified. Joining me is Kathy Allen. She is a Democratic strategist, and Randy Peppel, who is a Republican strategist. And the first thing is, this is a tiny little district on Capitol Hill in Seattle, but yet it is getting a lot of attention. Yep, sure is. Brings everyone to their knees or to tears just to even think about it. However, there, there is a, a history here that's important before we get into all the pros and cons and particularly the money spent over a million bucks already um, spent by each side has actually had over $600,000 raised either to get rid of her or to keep her. In any event, I got to say, you know, she's an institution, whether I like it or not, uh, Kashama has been somebody from the very beginning who was going to be different. And the one, I don't blame her for the difference. I don't blame her for bringing socialism to the bench. But I do say that the woman is sort of her own uh, star. She's at the center of the conversation. And so this was just for all those people who complain all the time about all the stuff that's wrong with Seattle and why they hate Seattle. She is the root of many of those statements. And in my uh, view of it, Shams Hawat is a national figure because for her brand of socialism, her party, she is their national standard bearer. And so the majority of her fundraising support and her financial support uh, to get into office comes from national sources who are just advancing a socialist ideology. Now, the fact is, Councilmember Sawan is not that much further further to the left than all the other members of the Seattle City Council. Uh, they are all on what we we view as the extreme left on any type of partisan scale. But she's the only one who calls herself a socialist and taps into that national money uh, that supports uh, that that supports socialist ide- ideology. And by accepting that national money and focusing on that national uh, agenda. She's forgotten that she represents the, the, the third district of the city of Seattle, and those voters have legitimate complaints. The three that the Supreme Court approved are all very valid. But the bigger reason is she doesn't care about Seattle. She does not want to represent the people who elected her. She wants to represent a national, even an international movement. And it's time to end this charade. And uh, the signatures will be validated undoubtedly. And in the uh, special election to come, we can only hope that the voters of the third district come to their senses and uh, recall her. When the history is written about this woman, what they're going to say is that she is the person responsible for leading the way for all of the other pro-socialist activities that we have been either complaining about or we have been um, hoping will change from the uh, Amazon taxation package to a number of the different kind of freebie kinds of money for Black brilliance and beyond. The fact is, is that she has been the person with the umbrella for all of the rest of the new folks on the council to be headed way left of center. This isn't a right or left issue, but whoever replaces uh, Sawant on the city council representing the third district will be very far to the left of anybody that I would want to support. (laughs) However, they will fit the district in a way that uh, most uh, local elected officials do. But Council Member Sawant doesn't want to be a local council member. She wants to be a national or international figure. And it's time to end that charade. And the voters will end up with a member of the council who is perhaps still the most liberal 
on the Seattle City Council, but they might actually care about the third district of Seattle and not their own ego. And that's all that motivates uh, council member Sawan at this point in time is, is herself. And, and Kathy, you're a democratic strategist. Mm-hmm. If someone is recalled, do the people recalling her run the risk of martyring her? Maybe yes, maybe no. I think she's already a martyr. I think she already is the, I would say the person that helped lead the way or helped lead the council astray in terms of a number of these issues where she goes into it with a cover that says, hey, 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 don't be afraid. We can actually get this done. Let's go ahead and do some of these things. I don't care what it costs. Let's do it because it's the right thing. And when she does that, she really brings out a core group. I would call it the Bernie Sanders crowd that ends up in in many Democratic districts thinking that there's a lot positive there. And she also has a base in and amongst a lot of the folks here who uh, fall out as a pox on all your houses. They hate all politics. They hate all politicians. They hate all parties. The fact is, is that she has not just developed a reputation and a national kind of spotlight, but she has indeed brought many tax dollars from Seattle and those people in that third district with her. Talking about political strategy, one of the things that Sawant did was sign her own recall petition. This is what she had to say. We would gather the rest of the signatures from District 3 registered voters opposed to the recall. That's right. Myself. Now, her stated objective here was to force the recall effort to put the issue on the ballot in the general election in November, having made the calculation she's more likely to survive when there's a higher turnout. Randy, do you agree with that? The dynamics of the recall election are yet to be determined. But what Sawant was doing by signing the recall petition was to try to make this about herself. When it happens, both sides will have plenty of money to drive turnout uh, among Seattle voters. But she was just she needs an enemy in this fight. And that enemy has to be Amazon. It has to be the rich. It it has to be the Trump. It has to be all the boogeymen that uh, Swant depends on because she doesn't actually do her job. If she did her job, she could talk about the ways that she was leading that were helping the people of the third district. But instead, she needs somebody to attack and say, these people are attacking me. They're attacking us and try to make it a a third district against the world uh, type election. And the reality is, is that all the people who signed the recall petition are vote registered voters in the third district. Those are the rules for the for the recall petition. So wants money comes from outside the third district. The only people who want her to remain in office don't live here and don't have the burden of having her representation. Setting up that sort of dynamic of me versus the world, us versus the world, that's a pretty effective strategy politically, isn't it? Hardly. I think it uh, it comes and it goes. The fact is, when you get down to a district level, what happens is that people start thinking about, you know, we really haven't ever gotten that sidewalk built here in the third. We still haven't gotten, you know, garbage is a mess up here. Mass transit is considering the entire Capitol Hill area a key for bottlenecks. It, all of the stuff that goes on, the fact is, is that uh, it really 
really has become a central area of protest, a central area of people who are much more inclined to be anti anything that's going to be generally popular. What I believe is that it's not nearly as I, I think popular for the people who are paying taxes and the people who are sitting there just trying to get some basic services. You know, their parks have been a mess for the last two years. I mean, the whole takeover area, the police you know, department considers it a wasteland in a lot of areas. I mean, the place is filthy. And I think from that perspective, if you live up there and some pretty fancy houses with pretty involved taxpayers are up there saying enough is enough. We've got to get out of this. But there's also a lot of young renters. And, and one of the things that I've noticed in, in covering Sawant is that her demographic, uh, the followers, uh, tend to be the young, idealistic 20-something-year-olds. They're they're all renters and tend to, and, and, and I'll say this, having been a young, idealistic 20-year-old at some point, uh, tend not to look too far in the future. They're, they're more concerned about those national issues, like uh, you had suggested, Randy, that Sawant seems to be... Uh, aiming towards rather than at the local level. Well, absolutely. I mean, that that is her only play because she can't talk about being a city council member in a, any kind of traditional sense as someone who's going to engage in the give and take of uh, trying to get services for their district, trying to uh, manage the constituent problems that come up. Instead, she wants to lead an illegal march on the mayor's house because that gets more attention on Sawant, which is what she is all about. Now, will that work uh, with some younger voters? Yes, if they if they accept the premise of her attack. But this is a recall election that is being brought about by the people of the third district. Sawant can say, oh, it's Amazon that's doing this. Well, that's BS. She knows she's lying when she says it. She can say that it's Trump or it's the Republicans. That is likewise BS. Sawant knows she's lying when she says that. But she needs to have this demon to try to rile up those voters. That's why the strategy of pushing the election to uh, beyond a general election to a special election or a school levy election will mean that you're going to have perfect voters, the type of people who care about elections and care about governance, and those people won't care about Sawant. And those are people that usually in special elections or even in our school elections, the turnout is around 22%, and of that, 11% are indeed people under the age of 35. I mean, the, the strategists for the recall uh, for Sawant have gotten to the point where they realize if they can control a smaller universe of people showing up, that the traditional part of those folks, particularly at the holiday season, is likely to give them an advantage of getting the tried and true voters out. Bottom line for both of you, do you think she gets recalled from office? Oh, yes. And then she'll come back and run again and win again. But whatever it is, I do think that, yes, this time I really do think there's an opportunity, given the strategy of a, a, an absolutely new election in December. Randy? Given all that the voters of the 3rd District have gone through since the COVID pandemic broke, I think it's time for her to go. And I think that they will recall Sawant and replace her with someone who's going to be just as far to the left but might spend a little bit more time on the issues that matter in the in the third council district. 
All right, we're going to have to leave it there, but Kathy and Randy, don't go anywhere. We're going to talk about Texas and their controversial new abortion law coming up in just a few moments. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podolis, still joined by Republican strategist Randy Peppel and Democratic strategist Kathy Allen, and also in the news this week, Texas. And it's not just about their new abortion law, which effectively bans all abortions after six weeks, which is far sooner than when most women know they are pregnant. Obviously, this is a very contentious issue and a very personal issue for many, many people, no matter which side you are on. But this seems to be the first major shot in trying to strike down Roe versus Wade. Randy, what's your take on it so far? There have been attempts to reverse Roe versus Wade since Roe was decided uh, in the early 70s. And frankly, that's the problem with the fact that the abortion debate was settled by judges uh, and not by the people's elected representatives. You have appointed representatives making the decision, not elected ones. And that has kept this debate alive now for uh, 50 years. The reality of the Texas law is the majority of the voters in Texas support restrictions on abortions. Whether they support this law remains to be seen. And whether the Supreme Court will actually find the law constitutional once it takes effect remains to be seen. But the thing to remember in Washington State is what happens in Texas stays in Texas uh, from our (laughs) perspective. In Washington State, if and when Roe versus Wade is overturned by the Supreme Court, abortion will be legal in Washington State. Abortion was made legal by the voters of our state before Roe versus Wade was passed. And there are several uh, other states across the country that have since passed abortion legalizations, making sure that abortion would be legal in their state should Roe versus Wade be overturned by the Supreme Court. There will be other states that their voters will say, we want restrictions on this procedure. And that's what's going on in Texas. That's what's going on in some other uh, southern states. And eventually one of those cases will get to the U.S. Supreme Court, and then they will have to decide whether Roe was properly decided in the 70s or whether it is time to revisit it. But at the end of the day, it will have no impact whatsoever on Washington state and a woman's right to health care in this state as defined by the voters of this state for the last 50 years. Well, Randy, I think you you bring up a, a good point that the Supreme Court, in their ruling, basically found that the people who sued over this law did not have standing. They didn't get to the actual merits of the law, and certainly that's going to be litigated over the next months and years and and on down the road. But if we look at the law itself, and without getting into a, a debate over whether abortion is right or wrong, because there are passionate arguments on both sides of that, the idea of deputizing citizens... That's something rather unique. Is that in and of itself legal and constitutional? Where, where do you think on that, Kathy? I think that it's still yet to be determined. I think that it's an interesting argument that doesn't have books written about it as far as legal interpretations of it. It's a new area that isn't automatically determined to be uh, something that you'd throw out 
immediately, like most of the other suits that have been filed, over 140 in the last three years alone, have actually been been uh, filed, but most of them never got to be heard more than a paragraph before they were dismissed. The fact is, is that this has become, again, the, I would say, the poster child for partisanship throughout the country, and it becomes an unfortunate affair that Randy and I even have to talk about it. Randy, turning to the, the political side of this as well. I was talking to a friend of mine who is uh, deeply involved with uh, politics over in, in, in the Midwest. He is a devout Catholic and he said of this law that evangelicals have quote, weaponized Christianity. And it's not just this law. It, it seems like now with whether it's in the post-Trump era or with a different makeup of the Supreme Court, a lot of these social issues are now being brought to the fore. I guess as someone who's been involved in Republican politics since the 1980s, social issues have always been at the fore. They come in cycles as to how important and which social issue might be the leading edge of argument uh, for social conservatives. But I think it's always been there. And whether it's abortion, whether it was gay rights, gay marriage, uh, whether it was legalization of marijuana. I mean, there have been social issues that come up from time to time, grab the public attention, and particularly uh, on the conservative right, cause uh, voters to get involved in the process. So I, I would argue that this is the evolution of social issues because when something is decided by the Supreme Court and not by your elected representatives, there is unfinished business. I don't think it's a done deal, except in the eyes of those Democrats who will use it for fundraising and get out the vote. Uh, And this is a great voter turnout tool. And I have seen statements from everybody from the insurance commissioner, Mike Kreidler, who committed an ethics violation by using state resources to attack the Texas Republicans as Taliban uh, to Governor Inslee, to Land Commissioner Franz, to every uh, person who is running on the left for local uh, races this fall. They're all talking about abortion. Why? Because it gets their base riled up and it takes attention from the utter dismal failure of the Biden administration in Afghanistan and the slowing economy due to uh, the COVID variant. But to be fair, it's an issue that riles up Republican voters as well, particularly in the South and in the Bible Belt. There's no doubt that uh, pro-life issues will motivate uh, grassroots Republican voters across the country, particularly in the South, uh, as you say. But the places where the Democrats are in trouble is where they need to motivate their voters to get out. The Democrats will undoubtedly use this as a tool uh, to to turn out their vote this year and next. Republicans will try to use it as as a tool, but frankly, they use it every election. So the, the Texas decision doesn't become a really big motivating factor for pro-life conservatives because every year they turn out on this issue. Finally, Kathy, do you think this is going to be a a big issue for Democrats in the midterm elections next year? I think everything could be a big issue in the election next year. I think I've already started looking at the number of different states with actual states' rights issues on everything from uh, voting laws, uh, taking a look at just... uh, 
what people are thinking in regards to the different kind of decisions we're making on COVID, that already there's a laundry list, as long as your arm, of the issues that could separate us. I don't see a lot of those things that are middle ground for next year. So far, they've been polarized to the point that simple things like whether or not you've had a Pfizer shot or you've had uh, any of the others uh, and which ones require you to get a booster or not. I mean, these things have been complicated to the point that partisan rules more than science or what I would call more reasonable and less radical perspectives. So I say, you know, get ready. It's going to be another noisy year, and it's going to be one that's going to be more partisan than I think reasonable for most of the rest of us. All right, Kathy Allen, Democratic strategist, Randy Peppel, Republican strategist, thank you so much for your time and insight. Thank you. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Anti-mask protesters in Vancouver will now have to stay at least a mile away from any school building. That decision from a judge in Clark County Kimmel's Caroline Johnson has the details. Parents upset about students being forced to wear masks at school have been protesting at school board meetings or outside school buildings across the country. But a protest last Friday in Clark County sent three Vancouver schools into lockdown as a group reportedly tried to get inside a locked school building. Now our partner station K2 reports a Clark County judge has granted an injunction barring demonstrators from holding disruptive protests near school campuses, specifically within a one-mile radius. That injunction will remain in effect as long as the mask mandate does. Our state has mandated all students and staff wear masks at school or on the bus. Typically, local control by districts trumps the state, but not in the case of COVID. Carlene Johnson, Como News. Meanwhile, the COVID outbreak is so severe in Cowlitz County, just north of Vancouver, that the coroner there has asked for an emergency declaration so he can bring in a refrigerator trailer for all the bodies. Coroner Tim Davidson told the county commission he needs to expand capacity until the new morgue opens in about a month. The Longview Daily News reports funeral homes are also maxed out. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Finally, this weekend, America marks the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. Many of us will somberly reflect on a day that changed our country forever. Joined once again by Como's Matt Markovich. And for our parents' generation, it was, where were you when John F. Kennedy was shot? For us... Where were mm-hmm. you when 9-11 happened? Let's start with you. What, what, where were you when you I was? <laughs> it's funny to say this. I was in transitional housing. Um, I was in a hotel in Renton because I had sold my house and my wife and I had two small kids at the time. Uh, we're in this hotel room and my wife literally said, what's happening on the TV? And we had the Today Show on and I saw this smoking building. And then literally as Katie Kirk was talking, I saw this plane fly in, mm-hmm. a second plane fly in. And I went, oh, my God, a plane just crashed. And they hadn't acknowledged it on, at all yet on, mm-hmm. the, on the broadcast. And uh, I, 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 honestly, I'm telling you, I'm telling this right now, I'm getting chills thinking about it because it is that pivotal moment that yeah. you will always remember exactly. I can picture the room. I can picture the TV, yeah. you know. And I didn't realize the impact of what had happened until obviously later that day when that's it consumed every news report I did for the next couple of weeks. Yeah. For me, I had the day before I had been hired by the local hockey team as their next play by play guy. I hadn't started yet. Uh, so I was sleeping in. 
because we're on West Coast time, and all of this happened on the East Coast. So this was about 6 a.m. our time, if I remember correctly, when it all happened. And I remember I get a call from my girlfriend at the time. I just let it go to, to well, I guess, answering machine at this point. <laughs> we were quite to the point where we had uh, cell phones all over the place. Uh, just kind of ignored it. And about five minutes later, my phone rang again, and I got up and answered it with my mom telling me to turn on the TV. And I turned it on just to see uh, the first tower fall. Mm. Um, very, obviously, disturbing imagery. Uh, and then I recall, as you said, that later on the day, you know, you were having to cover with, you know, local reaction and mm. everything like that. Uh, I remember driving around running errands and even the music stations, radio stations in the market had switched over to all news coverage mm-hmm. and were covering what had happened. And I have one other kind of a follow up on that day. It kind of happened a couple of days later. There was a person that worked for Como who was at the hotel across the street. Mm-hmm. And she and her husband were filming just before the collapse of the first tower. Mm-hmm. But she shared with us the video that she shot of people leaping off the, the t- I'm following them, all the bodies falling yeah. down. I will never forget that video. It's like when you can't unsee that stuff. Yeah. And once we saw that and how horrific that was, I remember my boss telling me, because I was doing the story, my boss saying, uh, that tape is never going to see the light of day. And it never did. And we actually got rid of it. We yeah. got rid of that copy of it. How do you think the country has changed since then? Well, I think there was a heightened awareness of terrorism at the time and what that could really mean. And I think that how could people feel like, how could it hit me here in the homeland? I think what's happened is that we've become so desensitized after going into the countries, Iraq, uh, and then now Afghanistan because of this, that we are now so desensitized to a possible terrorist attack here in the homeland that we're let our guard down. I was part of, after that, I did a lot of other work. I did work for Homeland Security after 9-11. I was contracted out by Homeland Security to be a reporter in these huge uh, test, they, they call them top-offs, where it was like a huge, gigantic exercise, a scale I've never seen before. And the very first one was actually here in Seattle when there was a nuclear, fake nuclear blast. That was all part of 9-11. It was to test the communications systems of like the local sheriff, how they deal with the FBI, the CIA, the spooks at the, the Fusion Center, um, and how that works if there was a natural disaster again. On various, and some of the, some of the, uh, the alliterations of that were terrorism-based. Mm-hmm. I can't say what I learned. I'm, I, I can't say that. I could say I participated in that. But I'm just telling you, it, that really opened my eyes to, I could say, I'll, I can just say this, that the, the lack of communication between the various levels of law enforcement in our country, and it really opened my eyes. And that's what those exercises were kind of targeting, is trying to expose that. And I believe it did. I can't tell you whether those issues that were part of the top off were solved, but boy, it opened my eyes and I'm hoping that there's some better communications between all the agencies here from the local sheriff all the way up to the president 
in when if something like this were to happen again. Well, a new Washington Post ABC News poll shows more and more of us believe those events change the nation in a negative way. The Post's polling director, Scott Clement, spoke with Como's Tom Hutler. When it comes to 9-11, the polling 10 years ago painted a significantly different picture than this one, apparently. That's right. Uh, we asked people if you think uh, the events of September 11th have changed the country in a lasting way. And what's been consistent is that more than 8 in 10 Americans have said yes. Uh, the way that it's changed has shifted over time, though. Ten years ago, as you mentioned, Americans were basically split. 39% said it changed the country for the better, 42% for the worse. In our poll conducted in the last couple of weeks, 46% say it's changed for the worse, 33% for the better. That positive figure has declined six points in the last decade and all the way down from 55 percent in 2002, roughly a year after the attacks. Is there a way to know whether the recent withdrawal from Afghanistan had an impact on these numbers? Well, we don't have a real direct measure, but there are there are clear signs. Um, you know, For one, Republicans are more likely to say that the uh, country, that the withdrawal from Afghanistan has made the country less safe. And we also see Republicans being more likely to say that the country is less safe than before 9-11. Though I think the reasons on this are a bit more complex than that, particularly because it's liberals um, who are some of the most likely to say the country has changed for the worse since 9-11. Uh, that might reflect some greater concerns about uh, surveillance uh, as well as the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's Washington Post polling director Scott Clement talking with Como's Tom Hutler. Meanwhile, there is a new 9-11 memorial at SeaTac Airport. Como's Charlie Harger has more on that. It's simple, humble really. Retired firefighter Alan Martinez tells Como there are hundreds of pictures telling the stories of 9-11 on the walls of the south staircase in the airport parking garage. The biggest thing is not to forget. Never forget what happened. He says the memorial is meant as an inspiration for the young generation of firefighters who use those stairs in their training and as a reminder of the 343 firefighters who died from the attack. It was the saddest, one of the saddest times in my life. It was, it was horrible. So the next time you are at the airport, look for the bronze plaque. And Martinez hopes you'll remember the sacrifices made by firefighters, police, flight crews, and the military that day. Charlie Harger, Como News. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Como News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and much more. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.